us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Through your word, we can come to know you. And not just know you, but know ourselves. And to see the world as it really is. To understand ultimate realities, spiritual truths. Things which truly matter. Why we're here, our purpose. How things that are broken can be fixed. Lord, we thank you for this passage and many others like it that point us to the cross of Calvary, to the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look at his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sacrifice, salvation, please guide us. Please guide our hearts and minds, and please guide me as I preach your word, that my words would be your words, and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, um, as most preachers do, uh, we uh, prepare series for those big holidays, especially Christmas and Easter, and it's very fitting to do that. Um, and so I was looking at, um, as we ended the book of Colossians, that left me a few Sundays to um, do a, a short series, and three series, I f- um, figured I'd do the perfect life of Christ, perfect death of Christ, and then the perfect redemption of Christ, and uh, so um, today we'll be looking at um, the life of Jesus Christ and, and how it um, contributes, uh, the significance of it to our salvation, because it, it's it's really significant. Um, too often we just look at um, the gospel and Jesus dying for our sins in his sacrifice. And that's right and true. But I think there's, there's more to his sacrifice. There's more depth to understanding his sacrifice when we understand his life and what he came to do and the nature of his life. That he was the perfect man in, in, in everything that he did. Thought, word, and deed. And, uh, you know, this, this season, uh, Easter, it's perhaps the most important season for Christians. Um, it's, it's central to Christianity, to the church, um, the celebration of the um, sacrifice of Christ, of, of Passion Week. All the events leading up to it, and it's, it's no um, coincidence that we celebrate during this time of year because it, it, it's, it's not just when it took place, but it's according to the Jewish calendar. It's according to Passover, which adds um, a great amount of depth to what happened uh, 2,000 years ago on Calvary. This is important. It's an important time of year. And... Uh, because it's so important, um, I think sometimes we can get distracted. We can d- get distracted by what the world um, uh, considers Easter to be. 
And uh, even that term Easter is it, not found in the Bible. It doesn't come from Christianity. Um, just looking up um, that term, uh, I, I found a couple sources. And um, one source says the first records of the word Easter come from before the year 900. The word comes from the name of the Germanic goddess Eorster, or Easter. Some sources say Anglo-Saxon goddess, who is honored with a spring festival. And that's kind of where we get all the spring stuff, bunnies and um, eggs and all that. Of course, I, I would venture to say that almost everybody that engages in those um, activities is not worshiping this goddess or probably has no clue. They're just, that's what you do. <laughs> Easter rolls around. I, I remember um, the last place I worked at. And um, for ladies, this can be a huge temptation because you love to decorate. And I remember working in an office and there's one lady and it was just like every holiday, decorating the whole office and, and there's a couple times of the year where it's just she had to endure a long span of time before the next holiday came around so she could decorate and uh, sometimes we just do things and we don't realize why we're doing them and we can get caught up and it's not inconsequential that all this stuff um, kind of distracts us from what truly happened what Easter Resurrection Sunday is all about. It's, it's spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. We don't like to think about it in that way, but our enemy is subtle. He's sinister. He is subversive. He's smarter than us. He's been around longer than us. He knows how to deceive us. He's the greatest liar there is. And he can easily distract us. And too often, um, believers, unbelievers, um, they get distracted. They're deceived. Um, sometimes deceived by additions, by things which in and of themselves seem harmless. And I bring this up not to um, trouble your conscience, over wearing pastel colors or painting eggs or eating chocolate bunnies or a peep. <laughs> There's other reasons why you probably shouldn't eat those things, but um, nonetheless, you can, on an individual basis, you can partake in those things. But for a local church as a whole, as an organization, to buy into that, they're being distracted, they're being deceived, and they're, in a sense, dishonoring Christ. Because this time of season is all about him and his sacrifice. And yes, we celebrate his sacrifice every Sunday. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why we gather on Sunday. Um, not just because that was the day that he rose, but it was the first day of the week. We don't, we don't see that, but the first day of the week, God created everything. And on the first day of the week, he recreated man in his own image. Um, he recreated man through Jesus Christ. He, he brought redemption. We gather, we honor Christ because 
of what he did on that day because he rose on Sunday. But we especially honor him and celebrate his sacrifice in this time of year because that's the time of year in which it happened. It's according to the calendar. It points back to Passover. He was the perfect spotless lamb. And uh, it is a good time of year um, for us as believers, but also, in a sense, for the world. Because even though they try to cover up Christ and try to cover up Christianity with Easter eggs and bunnies and all that other stuff, you can't get away from it. He's there. You're confronted with Christ and Christianity and even for Jews, Passover, which points to him. We're confronted with what he did, who he is. Uh, one author, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, writes in his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, he writes this, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions pray. Jesus is the most important figure ever. And not just Christianity is all about Jesus. Um, the world, creation itself is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Everything, even, you know, as uh, the, the joke is, uh, you know, the old Sunday, the, the answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. And, and because of that, as this author says, our whole calendar are, is determined by his life. And even as much as the world tries to cover that up with uh, BCE and CE, uh, before Common Era and Common Era, and you, and you can easily ask them, well, what's the difference? What made the difference? And they're forced to say, well, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus made the difference. And it's like, oh, oh, okay, then why don't we just stick with the same terminology? You know, uh, and we can also see, as this author writes, as by his name that millions curse. You know, I don't think you'll ever hear someone say, Buddha, damn it. You'll never hear someone say, oh, Joseph Smith. But the name of Jesus Christ is blasphemed every day, and it just rolls off the tongue. Just rolls off the tongue. Spiritual warfare. They know. Deep down, God has written his law upon their hearts. They know what they're doing. Intellectually, they might not know, but they, they know they are blaspheming God. Jesus is the most important figure there is. And because of that, I want to look at his life, and then next week, his death, and then the week after, his perfect redemption. So today, we're going to look at four aspects of the perfect life of Christ four aspects of the perfect life of Christ. And we're going to start with Christ's perfect birth and then Christ's perfect upbringing, Christ's perfect obedience, and then Christ's perfect representation. So Christ's perfect birth. 
And even as I was, you know, um, going through seminary and studying theology, and, and we study the attributes of God, rightfully so. And sometimes we have Sunday school classes on the attributes of God, and that is good. And we need to learn about the attributes of God. But I'm thankful that I had a professor who, um, and I'm sure he didn't come up with this. He's probably quoting another professor who quoted another professor who wrote it in a book somewhere. He called it the perfections of God. Because all of his attributes are perfections. He is perfect in his love and his mercy and his wrath and his justice and his kindness, and his wisdom, and his omniscience, and his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. He's perfect in all his attributes. They are not merely attributes, but they are perfections. And as Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, his birth was perfect as well. It came at the perfect timing, in the perfect place, under the perfect circumstances, the, the, the perfect time in history. Galatians 4 is as Paul uh, refutes uh, legalism and the error of the Judaizers. He, he um, exalts Christ in his gospel. And in Galatians 4, in verses 4 to 5, he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He says, the fullness of time, the fullness of the time, the perfect timing. He came, the perfect time in history. There was not a better time in history for him to come. And not just with what was happening in the local area and in Israel. But the Roman Empire, the whole world, uh, uh, all of history in general, it was the perfect time in history. But it was also the perfect time in Israel. It was the perfect time in Israel. And, and we see this in, in some of the prophecies concerning Christ, but no, most notably in, in Daniel's prophecy. Daniel chapter 9 and, and uh, uh, his 70 weeks. And, and certainly... Um, for many of the Jews, uh, this was mysterious. And it's mysterious for Christians, but it's less mysterious because we have the benefit of more revelation of the New Testament, of being able to look back at these prophecies and see how um, intricate they are, how precise they are. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, he writes this, Seventy weeks have been determined for your people. God speaking through Daniel. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And 
that prophecy is, in a sense, mysterious because of the term uh, weeks and the number. Um, but nonetheless, it's precise about the events, about what events will take place and when the Messiah will come. And we have the benefit of history of the New Testament, of looking back and seeing this. One commentator, he writes concerning this prophecy, he says, These are weeks of years, whereas weeks of days are described in a different way. The time spans from Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 B.C. in Nehemiah to the Messiah's kingdom. This panorama includes seven weeks or 49 years, possibly closing Nehemiah's career in the rebuilding of the street and wall, as well as the end of the ministry of Malachi and the close of the Old Testament. 62 weeks or 434 more years for a total of 483 years to the first advent of Messiah. This was fulfilled at the triumphal entry on 9 Nisan, A.D. 30. 9 Nisan, um, speaking of the Jewish calendar, the Jewish month of Nisan. The Messiah will be cut off, a common reference to death. And three, the final seven years or 70th week of the time of Antichrist. Roman people from whom the Antichrist will come will destroy the city of Jerusalem and its temple in A.D. 70. This all happened precisely as was prophesied through Daniel. There's several other prophecies that Christ fulfilled, that his birth fulfilled. He, his birth was perfect. It was perfect in his timing, in the perfect time in Israel. And not only that, as we read the beginning of the Gospels and we, we see these genealogies, and we see the genealogy in Matthew, and Matthew at the end of his genealogy um, concerning Christ and his line, he says, therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And there are some theologians that um, quibble about uh, whether it's precisely 14 or not. But whatever the case may be, we see order here. We see there was an order here. There was a plan. He came at the perfect timing. Second, he came to the perfect place, Bethlehem. Came to Bethlehem. And it was a perfect place, first because of prophecy, because of the prophecy in, in Micah. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting from the ancient of days. It was perfect place because of the prophecy and second because of David. Because this was the hometown of David and the Messiah, Jesus, would be, uh, uh, he would uh, sit on the throne of David. He would be in the line of David. He would be the king that David was not. And third, because this was a perfect place because of Rome, because of Herod the Great, and the religious leaders. And just the, 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 the timing of it all and, and the circumstances surrounding his birth that this was the perfect place for him to be born and all the political things happening with the occupation of Rome and the rise of Herod the Great and, and everything that he was doing, everything that he tried to do to kill Jesus and then even the religious leaders 
Because Joseph was from Nazareth, and we know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and, and yet as Jesus is, is uh, uh, t- trying to tell them who he is, John chapter, at the end of John chapter 7, the, the religious leaders say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, well, you know, first off, he was born in Bethlehem. Second, there is a sense that there were prophets. There was a prophet that came near, came near Galilee. But nonetheless, we see how this perfect place just it adds to the story. Third, his perfect birth was under the perfect circumstances. See, the, the Roman census, it just coincidence that the Roman emperor commands for a census. And so Joseph and Mary have to go to, um, to the, in a sense, uh, the hometown of his tribe, to Bethlehem. They have to go to Bethlehem to be counted in the census. And so they traveled to Bethlehem so that they could fulfill prophecy. And we also see uh, the circumstances in um, them coming and Mary and Joseph and the scandal surrounding Jesus' birth, uh, being born of a virgin, being um, Mary was found with child when they weren't officially married. And then we, we read uh, in the birth account that there was no room in the inn. This could be better translated guest room. Guest room. And it wasn't um, as we think of many hotels, but when the Jews traveled, they stayed with family members. And chances are, um, this most likely points to the fact that because she was with child, and it seemed as if uh, she had committed adultery, and there was scandal that um, distant relatives and family members did not welcome her and Joseph. And so they, Jesus was born in a humble estate, in, um, in a sense, in a barn, in a, a cave probably, and was laid in a manger, a feeding trough. We also see these circumstances surrounding Herod, the wise men, their flight to Egypt to fulfill prophecy. Matthew chapter 2, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoting from Hosea 11.1, which kind of likens uh, Jesus to Israel. Because initially it's talking about Israel's calling in Exodus from Egypt as God's son. And it corresponds to Jesus' calling and return from Egypt as God's son. But what's the big so what? So what? Well, Christ's perfect birth, all the the timing, the place, the circumstances, it reveals and it exemplifies the perfect sovereignty, wisdom, and providence of God in sending his son into the world to save sinners. This was, uh, Jesus lived a perfect life, and so his birth was perfect in, in all the circumstances, all the details, all the specifics. 
Second, there's Christ's perfect life. Um, in looking at his perfect life, we, we look at his perfect upbringing, Christ's perfect upbringing. He was born to the perfect family. Not, not that they were perfect in, in any um, uh, sense of the word, but they were the perfect family for him to be born into. Because, first and foremost, because the lines of Joseph and Mary, which we see in Matthew's genealogy and also Luke's genealogy, both give him the right to the throne of David. That he would be the heir of David. He would be the Messiah because of both their lines. Joseph, from the line of Joseph, him being the legal rightful heir, and then um, from the line of Mary um, being the physical heir because he was born of the, conceived of the Holy Spirit. But also, they were the perfect family because their circumstances provided for both the obscurity and the humility of Jesus. That, that he could, in a sense, um, grow up in some sort of obscurity in Galilee and Nazareth, but also um, it adds to his humility, his humiliation, his humbling because of the scandal of Joseph and Mary. His siblings and relatives were also providential in his life and development, that he had siblings, he had relatives. We, we think of, um, there's a couple verses that, that talk about his brothers and his sisters. And, and then also uh, John the Baptist as his cousin. This is all providential. He, he was brought forth and brought up in the perfect family. And also in the perfect hometown, in Nazareth, in, in the north of Israel. And we see this after, the, after um, his birth. Um, an angel comes to Joseph, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled, he, he shall be called a Nazarene. Just to fulfill prophecy, but he says when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, and not only was Herod the great brutal and ruthless uh, uh, a tyrant, but Archelaus was similar, and he was persecuting Jews. And so providentially, he went to the north of Israel, to Galilee, to Nazareth, um, also to fulfill prophecy. He, he was brought up in the perfect hometown, which was also a backwoods town. Uh, we, we see this when um, he comes in his earthly ministry and, and uh, the, he, he's starting to gather disciples and, and uh, uh, he calls Philip and then Philip goes and finds Nathanael in, in John chapter 1 at the end of chapter 1 and it says that Philip found Nathanael and said to him we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph 
And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's just, just that phrase gives you an idea of what type of town that was like. In some backwoods town or, or, or some violent town or, or some uneducated town, you know, whatever you think of when you think of just a bad town. That's what Nazareth was like. And, and that adds to the humbling of Jesus, of, of one who was so high, brought so low, willingly. This adds to his perfect life. But it also fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. Zebulun and Naphtali, this is an area of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali in the north of Israel um, and, and near uh, the tribe of Dan as well, which was the most northern tribe. Um, these tribes, which um, not only were in a position to where um, invading armies from Assyria, Syria, Babylon would come in, um, but were also most prone to syncretism, to idolatry, to turning away from God. Uh, they were intermixed with Gentiles. This was Galilee of the Gentiles. This was probably the worst part of Israel. And this was where Jesus would be born. His, his perfect upbringing included the perfect family, the perfect hometown, and then third, the perfect maturation, maturation of, of maturing, it provided this context where um, he would grow and be matured and um, become the man he was um, to be, the perfect man. He was the perfect man. He always was the perfect man. He was always perfect. But God had ordained perfect circumstances for his life. And it was part of it. We, we see a little bit about this in, in, in um, you know, his, his, uh, his time at the temple when he was 12. There, there's not much we know about Jesus' life. We, we, we know the prophecies. We know the birth accounts. We, we know most, mostly about his earthly ministry. But from the time he was a child until he entered his earthly ministry around the age of 30, we only have this one passage of when he was 12. And there's a reason why we have it. It's a very important passage. Luke chapter 12, uh, 2, at the end of Luke chapter 2, in, in verse 41 to 52, says this, And his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know, but supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him, 
And it happened that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Very important that uh, he said that and that this event happened when he was 12. Uh, Walter Leefield, in his commentary, he writes this concerning Jesus at the temple. He says, This section provides the only account of Jesus' boyhood we possess apart from apocryphal legends. The focal point is not his precocious wisdom, noteworthy as that was. Rather, Luke leads us to the real climax, Jesus' reference to God as my Father. This is the first instance of Jesus' filial consciousness, meaning uh, a son to a father, his sonship. His awareness that in a unique way, he was the son of God. He goes on to say, Luke takes yet another opportunity to emphasize the fidelity of Jesus' family to Judaism. Adults were supposed to attend the three major feasts in Jerusalem annually, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. For many, this was impossible, but an effort was made to go at least to Passover. With puberty, a boy became a son of the covenant. A custom continued in the present bar mitzvah ceremony. This was Jesus' bar mitzvah, in a sense. This was when he, in a sense, became a man. When that submission uh, to his parents transitioned to a full submission to God and being a child of the covenant, that he was fully uh, responsible uh, to keep the law, to follow the law, that in a sense, God is my father. And, and, and yet he, he still went home and he still submitted to his parents as he should. But we see this picture of him um, explaining who he is and starting to become a man. That he was fully man and fully God. But we also see a little bit uh, more of his maturation in his career. Jesus' apprenticeship in his career. Uh, we're, we're, we, we got a couple verses where we learn that he is the carpenter's son. Mark chapter 6, and, and when he is um, in his earthly ministry, he goes back to his hometown, and he's preaching in the synagogue, he's teaching in the synagogue, and all the people say, is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. And Jesus was saying to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. We see that he, was, uh, he had a career. And this term carpenter, it was, it's more general. It could be better translated builder. Um, yes, he, he was involved in carpentry, but looking at Israel, we, we know that many of the houses were made out of stone. A lot of things were made out of stone. Um, so it's likely that he did all sorts of building with stone and with wood. Um, we see that he had a, a vocation, 
that he had a family. He had siblings. And, and you know, we don't know. We, we, we know that when Jesus is 12, that Joseph and Mary were with him at the temple. But then when we fast forward to his earthly ministry, Joseph is out of the picture. So at some point, Joseph died. And, and many would assume, and that's all we can do is assume and speculate. We don't know exactly when Joseph died, but um, many would rightfully assume and, and speculate that Joseph probably died early in Jesus' um, adulthood, early in his teenage years, because then, if that were the case, and that would uh, make him the head of the home, that would force him to um, care for the home, to care for his brothers and sisters, to care for his mother, to exert and learn uh, leadership. And so that's, that's a good assumption that Jesus would have to take care of his brothers and sisters and his, his mother. And so he had a career. He was a faithful man of God. He worked. He supported his family. He did everything a Jewish man is supposed to do, everything a man of God is supposed to do. He had a perfect upbringing that helped him to do that. But once again, why is this important? Why is his perfect birth and his perfect upbringing, all these circumstances, why is it important? Because it, it points towards his perfect obedience, obeying the law perfectly, being the perfect man. We, we read in Philippians chapter 2, as, as Paul tells uh, the Philippians how they are to behave towards one another, he tells them that they are to behave in such a way which follows the example of Christ. And he says this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as Paul writes that, he's not only uh, giving the Philippians an example and us an example of how we are to live by following the example of Christ, but he's showing us uh, how Christ lived in total obedience to the law and also in him humbling himself in what theologians would call the kenosis or the change or the, the emptying of himself. He did not lose any of his divine uh, qualities. He did not change in a sense except in the fact that he added humanity to his divinity. He took upon himself the form of a man, the form of a slave, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was obedient in every way, but he was also humiliated in almost every way. And so we've seen Christ's perfect birth and his perfect upbringing. Now we're going to look at Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect obedience, starting with his perfect humiliation. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming a man. 
And, and not just a man, but a man um, born in, in all these circumstances sur- surrounding um, his birth and his family and his upbringing, uh, the circumstances of scandal and humiliation at his, his mother and his father, uh, the circumstances surrounding his uh, hometown and the uh, humiliation of, um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, Really? The humiliation that was no doubt probably felt uh, amongst his, his brothers and his sisters and, and, and perhaps even um, losing his father at a young age, having to support the family. And yes, some of this is reasoned speculation, but we see that he did humble himself and his circumstances uh, played a part in that. They were providential. From the time of his birth, there's perfect humiliation. Throughout his childhood and early adulthood, he, he would not get away from this scandal of his birth. In John chapter 8, towards the end of John chapter 8, and he's, he's trying to tell the Jews who he is. He's, he's proclaiming who he is, what he came to do. And, and they say to him, you are doing the deeds of your father. John 8, 41. Then they go on, they say, they, they said to him, actually, that's Jesus saying, you are doing the deeds of the, your father, talking about your father, the devil. And then they retort, they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. This sense of scandal surrounded him. The Jews that his, his mother uh, uh, was impregnated by a Roman soldier. There's scandal. We, we, you can read this in Jewish literature. It's hinted at. It was, it was with him throughout his whole, his whole life. And, and the Jews used it as uh, an offense to him, to discredit him. It's part of his perfect humiliation, and even throughout his earthly ministry. Isaiah points to, towards this in Isaiah 53. He writes, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Physically speaking, he was nothing to be esteemed. We don't know exactly what he looks at. It looks like, um, you know, we, there's so many pictures of Jesus and, and the truth of the matter, we have no clue what he looked like. But Isaiah gives us a little hint that he was, in a sense, obscure, nondescript. He's from this backwards town. He was born in the midst of scandal. It wasn't true scandal. He was born of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless... His humbling and taking on a human form um, had an additional humbling of the circumstances surrounding his birth. And there's a reason for his humbling. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all things, and not just the general uh, things of this world, uh, temptations to, 
to lust or, or coveting or pride or having things. But there's also this temptation to vindicate himself. This temptation to probably um, uh, strike back at the offenses. He, he, he didn't sin in any way. Even the smallest ways of being uh, rude or harsh or bittered, embittered because of his birth. He, he didn't sin in any of these ways in thought, word, or deed. But he was tempted in every way in which we are tempted. And his birth, his upbringing played a part in this so that he could be a faithful, perfect high priest, that he could identify with us. His perfect uh, obedience not only includes his perfect humiliation, but his perfect submission. He says, John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 9, 4, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Matthew 26, 39, the, 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 probably the, the perfect scene of his submission to the Father, to the will of the Father, is um, perhaps at his lowest point in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's praying and, and he, he's, he's sweating drops of blood because of the agony, not of the physical um, physical pain and torture of the cross, but the um, spiritual, mysterious torment and torture of enduring the wrath of God for all sin, for all sinners who would repent and believe upon him. And he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And as many have asked, what, what was in the cup? What was in the cup? It was a pure wrath of God that is alluded to by the prophets. This, this wrath of God, this, 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 this foaming cup that he would drink down to the dregs, down to the bitter sediment, all of it. And he sees this in his humanity. And he says, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He, he's not being disobedient. He understands what is coming to him, what he will endure. And yet he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. His perfect submission. His perfect submission. And then his perfect employment. His perfect employment. And, and I say perfect employment not because I'm speaking of his job, but because of his activities and the use of his time. He was always on mission. He was always focused on the cross. He was always focused on the Father, on doing the Father's will. He, he was not lax or uh, disobedient in any way. He made full use of his time and his, his uh, abilities. He was perfect in his obedience in every way, in his humiliation, his submission, and his employment. Lorraine Bettner writes in her book, The Person of Christ, as we study the portrait of Jesus, as it is presented in the four Gospels, there is impressed upon us the teaching that he came to earth on a specific mission, and that his whole life was lived and his work of redemption was accomplished in accordance with a divinely predetermined plan. 
At least from the outset of the public ministry, that plan lay before his mind in clear outline. He had no time to lose, yet he was never in a hurry. He was never the victim, but always the master of circumstance. Unswerved by the opposition of men, he went unflinchingly forward with the work that had been ordained for him in the councils of eternity. His whole life was governed by a divine must or necessity. He knew why he came, and he knew what he came to do, and his whole life showed that in his perfect birth, his perfect upbringing, his perfect obedience. Jesus Christ displayed perfect obedience in doing the Father's will in everything. Thought, word, and deed. Hebrews 5, verses 8 to 10 says this, in, in speaking of just the greater sacrifice, the greater person and work of Jesus Christ, the author to the letter to Hebrews, he writes this, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Saying he, he learned obedience and he was made perfect, not that he wasn't perfect before, but he became the perfect sacrifice in his perfect obedience and his perfect humiliation, his perfect submission, his perfect life made him the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, the lamb without spot that was able to uh, satisfy the wrath of God for us. And that gets to our final point, Christ's perfect representation. Because of his perfect birth and his perfect upbringing, his perfect obedience, his perfect life, he is able to be the perfect representation. First and foremost of God. He is a perfect representation of God to mankind and to his people. John, in the beginning of his gospel, says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Literally, we, we use the term um, to speak of Bible study and hermeneutics, exegesis. That's what that term is here. He exegeted the Father. He explained the Father to mankind to his disciples, to his people. Even when he was saying he goes to the Father, uh, uh, his disciples ask him, um, you know, show us the Father. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Christ, you've seen God. He is a perfect representation of God. And second, he is a perfect representation of Adam to God. He is a perfect representation of Adam to God and to mankind. Adam was created uh, to, in, in the image of God to, in, in a sense, be an, an, an image bearer, an icon, a representation of God upon the earth. And, and in, a, in a sense, uh, God's vice regent or representative on the earth, he was to um, subdue the earth and have dominion over it, to have a perfect relationship with God. And yet Adam failed. But where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. And as I began in, in Romans chapter 5, I wanted to continue there in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. 
says this, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was, is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. He's a type. Adam was a type. He was, in a sense, uh, looking forward to Jesus, the perfect man. You know, uh, the redemption was not plan B. It was always in the works. It was always in the divine counsel and will of God that he would send forth his son as a perfect representation. He would be everything that Adam was not. One who would rule and reign in perfect righteousness. He is a perfect representation of David. He's also a perfect representation of the prophets as one who spoke like no one else did with authority as a perfect spokesman for God without sin. They hung on his every words. Here's one who speaks not as our scribes and leaders do, but as one with authority. Jesus Christ was a perfect representation of God, of Adam, of Israel, of David, of the prophets. He was a perfect representation of the high priest in making atonement for his people. Making atonement for his people. I, I just want you to turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. That he was able to do what the high priest could not do in, in uh, providing atonement for sin, for his people, making atonement. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He made atonement for his people. And this was a reminder, the whole sacrificial system was a reminder of the sinfulness of mankind that they, if they followed it completely and faithfully, they would be sacrificing daily. And then even then, the high priest would still have to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer atonement for the people. And he would have to do this continually. And not only for the people, but for himself, he would have to make atonement. But look down to Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is important for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. It was a once for all sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, making atonement for his people. And then he went to sit down at the right hand of the Father to intercede for his people continuously because he's the perfect representation of the high priest. He is the great high priest. He is our perfect high priest. Lastly, he's a perfect representation of his people, of all those who would repent and believe upon him, of bearing their burdens and taking their sins upon him, of living for them. He not only bore our penalty for sin, our punishment for sin, bearing our sin in his body on the tree, but living for us, of living righteously and perfectly for us. That's the point of his perfect life, that he was the perfect sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, also known as a great exchange. This is the gospel in a nutshell. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It wasn't just that our sins had to be punished, but we lacked righteousness, a positive righteousness. We, we not only transgressed against God, we not only broke his law, we not only sinned against him, but we failed to obey his law. We failed to do what he commanded us to do. We failed in the fact that uh, we have not lived up to his righteous standard positively. And so it wasn't just that our sins needed to be paid for, but we needed a righteous life. Christ offered this. I like what is written in MacArthur and Mayhew's biblical doctrine. They write this, In Christ we have a substitute who has both paid our penalty and achieved our righteousness. Christ provided forgiveness by atoning for our sins on the cross. Just as our sins were reckoned to his account when he died on the cross, in the same manner, his righteousness is counted as ours. His perfect righteousness is thus the ground on which we stand before God. Sinners are not justified because of some good thing in them. God can declare us righteous. He can justify the ungodly and yet remain just because he graciously imputes to us the perfect righteousness of his own dear son. Thus the sole ground of justification is the righteousness of Christ counted to be ours as a gift by grace alone. It's not just that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins to save us. If that were the case, he could come down to earth as a man 30 years of age and just go to the cross and bear that punishment for us. But no, we needed a righteousness. And so he had to live the perfect life for us, obeying the law perfectly, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, uh, suffering the humiliation of sinners against him, obeying perfectly. This is why uh, Paul not only wrote 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God in him, but prior to that, a few verses prior, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
We, we couldn't just clean up our act. We couldn't just stop doing bad things and stop sinning and start doing good things. We, we couldn't balance the scales. We needed to be recreated. We needed to be fully redeemed in our heart, mind, soul, body. We needed to be made new. We, we, we need a redeemer. We need a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves. We, we needed our sins paid for completely. This is why, why Paul says to the Galatians, at the end of the Galatians, his whole argument is against a works righteousness, against a legalism that is, uh, he, he counts as a false gospel. He, he anathematizes it. He damns anyone who preaches a false gospel that you can be saved by works. He goes through his whole argument against legalism, against adding to the gospel. And then at the end of his argument in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, he says this, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. This is why Jesus said, you must be born again. You can't reason your way up to God. You can't do enough good works. You can't balance the scales. All you can do is throw yourself upon the mercy of God based on the sacrifice of Christ, based on the perfect life of Christ, based on the mercy of God, the forgiveness that is offered you through Jesus Christ because of his perfect life, his perfect death, and his perfect redemption. You must be born again. You must be recreated. And if you are outside of Christ, if you do not long for Christ, if you do not know this Christ, then the call is to repent and believe upon him, to throw yourself upon the mercy of God, upon his grace. Trust him. Because there's no reason to trust in anything that you could do, should do, or would do. Because you can't do. You can't do. God must do what man cannot do. And he has done it in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ not only gave himself up for us, but he lived for us. So that that perfect life could be credited to our account so that we could stand righteous in the sight of a holy God. That's the gospel. The gospel does not just include Christ's perfect death, but his perfect life as well. And we are to glory in that perfect life. We are to rest upon that perfect life. And we are to proclaim that perfect life. Lord God, we thank you for the perfect life of Jesus Christ a life that was perfect in every way from beginning to end, perfect in prophecy, perfect in circumstances, perfect in timing, perfect in every single way. He was perfect in thought, word, and deed. He did what we could not do. And he lived in a manner which we could not live. And he died the death which we all deserve to die. By his wounds we are healed. Lord, help us to not only believe the gospel, to embrace the gospel, but to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.